0: I'm Shereen Vatek, and you're listening to the Modern Retail Podcast, where I speak with executives leading the reinvention of retail and brands. But before we get to our very special guest, I want to have Modern Retail senior reporter, Kale Weissman, in to talk about a story he covered this week. Hi, Kale.
1: Hey, how's it going?
0: It's going well. You wrote a great story about Jet Black, which uh, which is sort of one of the most interesting experiments, I think, that Walmart has really done over the last few years. I wanted to have you in to talk a little bit about Jet Black's demise and what it really means for the industry. But at first, for people who don't know, what was Jet Black and what was Walmart trying to do with it?
1: Essentially, Jet Black was Walmart's attempt to get uh, rich city people uh, to use Walmart instead. Ah, and damn. Did, yeah, and didn't call those it, rich city people. Yeah. They didn't want to go to Walmart.com and they didn't want to go to Walmart stores. But they could have a private shopping concierge called Jet Black that would cost, I think, six hundred dollars a year. And they, you know, they would get stuff delivered to their door. It was pretty much just like a really nice shopping service uh, for you know more affluent people. Um, essentially. It was very expensive. It was only in cities. I believe it was only in New York, though. I might be wrong about that. But um, it was essentially Walmart trying to get data and bring in talent for a different kind of um, shopper than Walmart traditionally gets.
0: So so explain this to me, because Walmart is the second biggest online retailer in the country. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is the biggest brick-and-mortar retailer. It does very well from all accounts. I know they're trying to push into new markets. They're trying to go into grocery. They're trying to go into other things. Why Why go after this? Why sort of spread yourself into that area? And this was an acquisition, right?
1: Uh, no, it wasn't. It was the first thing out of store number eight. Oh, right. So, okay. So talk um,
0: about the incubator store so, number eight so no, and how this
1: s- Store number eight is uh, Walmart's incubator that uh, essentially where new ideas, often they're sort of on the DTC side or new brand side that are you know sort of incubated, started, tested in different markets. Uh, and sometimes rolled out that I don't think, I can't think of anything that's been rolled out. Can you?
0: (laughs) No, that's what I mean, because most of the incubator (laughs) seems to be
1: stuck in the incubating phase. I mean, I think that, uh, but you're right to think that Jet Black was an acquisition because, well, A, it's part of Jet.com, which was an acquisition. So there's that. It's also Jet Black, all of Walmart's attempts are, or, you know, projects like Jet Black, like its acquisition with Jet.com, its acquisition of Bonobos, are all, we're all realizing now that they're more talent hires. It's sort of Walmart's attempt to find who's doing the most exciting things in online retail, and then they're going to play around with the products and the brands that they had, and then maybe scrap them but keep the talent, mm-hmm. the raw talent they have, and then put that into the Walmart you know, actual Walmart.com uh, everyday doings. Sure. So okay. that's sort of what what happened with Jet Jet Black. What's happening with Jet.com? What's happening with a lot of these companies and ideas that have come out as sort of being stretched thin with Walmart, you know, or, or, or ideas that aren't necessarily core to what Walmart serves right now, but they are more uh, ideas for how can we get people with really innovative thoughts and uh, sure. brands. Sure. They're ideas. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah.
0: So. So what does kind of the Jet Black Death really mean? Because on one hand, I think it does say a lot about Walmart kind of almost coming into its own a little bit about what it's going to be doing with kind of digital experiments moving forward. I think they've tried a bunch of things. They certainly had the war chest to make that happen. Mm -hmm. They are able to have things like incubate and then maybe (laughs) not work out. Um, And now it seems like things are sort of taking shape. Everything's kind of coming back to walmart versus being spread out across all these disparate entities across jet.com yeah. across bonobos across mod cloth bring it all home
1: yeah i think that that's you know the the tying bind over the last year has been walmart's realizing that they don't need to have sort of standalone brands and services that you know t- to attract new kinds of customers they're bringing everything back home as you say i think what the the sort of underlying thing Theme around it all, which I find really fascinating, is I think a few years ago, 2015, 2016, 2017, when Walmart was looking into these companies, looking into these very beloved uh, brand executives that they brought in, it was almost so that Walmart could gain digital credibility. So it was it was not doing well online in 2016. It had very few SKUs online. It's it was not competing well with Amazon at all. And I think that Walmart realized it needed to be big and bold, and so it needed to buy a lot of things and a lot of people. And it did that, and now what Walmart, I think, has realized is that we have these people we don't need to launch these new services anymore. We can keep them within, and they can be within the Walmart umbrella. And uh, we no longer need to make a big splash by saying we're going to have a private concierge service. I mean, who knows? Maybe 10 years down the line, they will. But mm-hmm. that was more sort of to prove to everybody that they were willing to m- make these bets and to show that they meant business when it came to online commerce. And now they now we know. They're, the I think, the number one online grocery provider. Mm-hmm. They're number two to Amazon. The, the, amount, the Their ability to grow their online program over the last four years is truly insane and also just uh, shows how much money they have in their coffers.
0: One thing I I often think about with with sort of stories about, you know, Walmart is now number one and, you know, obviously Amazon's number one with overall online commerce, etc., is A lot of these things are showing to me that, look, scale always wins. Like there's been all this talk and all these disruptors and everyone's out there and you can buy things on text message if you, you know, Mm want to buy a certain beverage. And those are great. There's innovation happening in all the corners. But when it comes to online retail, big wins because you can sell more and you can can have obvious, the obvious sort of economies of scale and benefits of coming from scales. Like the middle seems to be the problem. You're either really big or you're really small. But if you're in the middle... You're screwed.
1: Yeah, and I think that what a lot of the the brand leaders who are very innovative won't say or maybe a few of them will say is that... they're looking for the big guys to scoop them up. You know, they, they, when they're when you're in the middle, you're not. You're going to be sort of in this nether space of sure. I can't grow to become the next, you know, huge giant. I can't be the next Walmart. Very likely, <laughs> you're
0: really not going to yeah, be yeah. Walmart. <laughs>
1: so right. I need either Walmart to buy me, or I need to do something else, or I need to start a new company that's smaller. <laughs> essentially,
0: absolutely. So you need to you need to sort of be yeah. at one end of that of that spectrum. Um, I guess my last question, what you mentioned kind of I like this idea of digital credibility, which mm-hmm. Walmart seems to have seems to have built up. What is Walmart's biggest challenge now moving forward, looking at the next five years? Like they just released earnings yesterday, sort of showed, you know, they're increasing investment in grocery, which makes a lot of sense as one place they can really win against Amazon, potentially, etc. They had, you know, Super Bowl ad for that, Um <laughs> So, grocery is definitely one thing. What else sort of does Walmart need to really focus on in this kind of race against Amazon? Which uh, they may never win, but they might win in pockets.
1: They might win in pockets, and I think that the overcoming the uh, the overarching realization right now is that these races with, uh, you know, next day, same day delivery, these races with grocery is that these are all extremely low margin businesses that more than likely won't turn a profit. Um, and so I think the next few years will be these big companies offering all of these services and then realizing they need to scramble to figure out a way so that they can show to shareholders that it was actually worth it to like create this infrastructure because right now they're losing money. Like the with with groceries a great example. Yeah, everybody wants to be an online grocer and they want people to either pick up in store or have it delivered to their house, but that costs so much money and there's truly no way to make that profitable unless you figure you know automate everything which no one has yet and then figure out some other you know media advertising part of it that will increase basket size you know there's there's a lot of other things and with walmart and i think with amazon and i think you know even smaller companies like roger different things like that they're all just figuring out how they're going to turn a profit because right now they're definitely not with these new um trials yeah
0: i think that makes a lot of sense kale weissman thank you so much for being on the show thank you for having me and now on to our guest interview the ear piercing experience um I remember mine, and it was genuinely terrifying, which is probably what my guest also has realized. Uh, Anna Harmon is the CEO and co-founder of Studs, which is seeking to, I quote, revolutionize the ear-piercing experience um, and just kind of make it a little less scary. Right, Anna? Yes. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have you. Okay. What is sort of the big theory, let's call it, or the thesis behind studs? Sure. So about a year and a half ago, I
2: went to get a second piercing myself, totally randomly on a whim, you know, trying to feel young again, I think. And I went to a very premium jewelry shop. And there was a really long wait, and it was going to be extremely expensive. Like I would have spent five hundred dollars for my piercing and my earring. And I this wasn't Claire's, by the way. It was not a five hundred dollar
0: Claire's. No,
2: no, no. It was not. not and I ended up saying to myself, "Well, I'm not going to wait for this." And I went with my co-founder Lisa to get my ear pierced at a tattoo parlor. And while the piercing experience was great, they pierced with a needle. It was healthy and safe. The overall environment was really not suited to me. Like, I felt very personally out of place there. And it was still expensive. I spent $120 to get my ear ear pierced with a piece of jewelry I didn't really like. And I said to myself, hmm, seems like there must be a better way to do this because I knew enough to know that I needed to get a needle piercing. And a lot of the big mall brands that we all know only pierce with guns. And even if you wanted to go get a needle piercing, you want to spend an accessible amount of money, an amount of money that feels reasonable to people, and you want jewelry that feels fun, and you want an environment that both feels healthy and safe, and also a place that feels welcoming for you. And I said to Lisa, wow, it feels like there's a real opportunity here to reinvent this experience end to end. Mm -hmm. In reality, most people are not getting their ear pierced to have holes in their ears. They're getting their ear pierced to wear jewelry. And so we really thought the opportunity was to combine healthy and safe needle piercing with really accessibly priced fun jewelry in an environment that the customer was excited to spend time in because, as you said, ear piercing is an event that most people remember. Like, I remember getting my ears pierced very vividly. And I think people are trying to mark occasions, and it is momentous. Mm
0: So you've said a lot of things that, that are really interesting. So I think there's a few parts of that that I want to understand better. You could just sell jewelry, right? Like you could just sell accessibly priced jewelry. And I think there's a market for accessibly priced jewelry. It seems almost like you've added on a service, but the service essentially is a product. When you're thinking about this as like a CEO and not even how you're marketing it, what do you think you're, what business are you actually in? So
2: I think two things. One... Lisa and I are very inspired by Clay Christensen's jobs to be done, and the way the customer actually was behaving um, as we did research about the business is most customers would go get their ear pierced at a – call it at a tattoo parlor, at a jewelry store, et cetera, and then they would go buy their earrings online or in person from a variety of different brands. And so they were really trying to achieve this multi-piercing look with multiple pieces of jewelry, but they were doing it in disparate locations. Mm -hmm. And that never really made sense to us. There was no reason why those things weren't combined. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of what comes first, the jewelry or the piercing, we are a piercing brand and we sell jewelry, but we are a services business and we will always be a services business. And Mm -hmm. there are a lot of jewelry brands that exist that are using piercing for marketing purposes. That is not what we are.
0: Right. You we, consider your... You are yes. a piercing company. And that's yes. what's first and foremost. And... And you have a retail location. We do, because you can't
2: digitally get your ears pierced. That's the one thing, you know. I always thought
0: that the one thing you couldn't do online was like sell perfume, and even that I have been proven wrong about. So yours definitely is the one. Exactly. Um,
2: Tell us a little bit about the location. So the first store for Studs is at 12 Prince Street, Prince between Bowery and Elizabeth. DTC Alley. Exactly. Um, It's a wonderful location, tons of foot traffic. We really love the neighborhood. And we... For us, physical environments were really about how can we work in small formats, because piercing doesn't require a lot of fixturing and jewelry is obviously quite small. And so we were very focused on how do we take advantage of macro real estate trends where we can get shorter term leases, smaller environments in a way that actually makes sense for the customer, like the customer for us is looking to come to a place where they can get pierced and they can look for jewelry, but it's not cavernous. There isn't tons of merchandise Mm. and it feels from a design perspective, like I said before, very fun, Instagrammable, but also sort of like a chic doctor's office.
0: <laughs> yes. And I've seen photos and it really that's exactly sort of the vibe that sort mm-hmm. I was getting from it. It's fun, it's exciting, but it's also clean and sterile and that's a good thing
2: exactly and I think that's what the customer was really looking for so right. from a design aesthetic and overall footprint perspective we really tried to design with the customer in
0: mind I am interested in this um, because you know we've so many brands that come on the show that are actually online only businesses or at least online first businesses and for a variety of reasons you know you're very very different because it's such a physical physical thing that you're actually selling but for so many of them they've kind of realized at some point whether it's the 25 million dollars or the 50 million dollars or the 100 million dollar revenue Point that they're like, I need retail, like, mm-hmm. I need physical retail, and it has lent to what we've been calling on the show sort of a little bit of like a hello, it's important you need a physical thing. And we've heard that from investors, mm-hmm. we've heard it from investors who work at companies that have invested in your company. When you're sort of thinking about the physical part of the company, I mean, you're the only way for you to grow is really to have loads and loads more locations, right? How big is the business sort of, how do you see the business scaling and how big can a business like this get? So I think to your first point, I agree. I think a lot of DTC only businesses
2: you've seen pivot back into retail as a growth mechanism. I also think there are certain types of businesses where retail always makes sense, made sense because that was the way the customer wanted to experience the brand, right? For us, we are, as you say, a physical business first because we have a physical service that can't ever be digitally provided. In terms of scale for studs, we think less about we need to get to X or you know Y number of locations in order to be, quote unquote, at scale. We think of it much more, how do we start to experiment with different types of formats to reach the customer in really interesting different ways? Mm-hmm. And that can mean what we call, quote unquote, flagship locations like our 12 print store, which still isn't that big, um, that are orbited by different types of formats of smaller locations that actually may make more sense in terms of reaching the customer. So we will likely you will see likely see studs do things like shop and shops and kiosks, etc., because we actually think that's a really good way to reach the customer without having to have a massive literal physical footprint. Um, and so we're much more interested in how do you actually take advantage of the real estate trends in a way that I think, you know, the direct-to-consumer brands of 10 years ago were really able to take advantage of the advertising landscape. For us, it's much more about how do you, Phys- how do you physically expand in a way that's not incredibly capital intensive That's an
0: awesome way to think of it. Basically, you saw really cheap real estate on Facebook um mm-hmm. or cheaper real estate on Facebook 10 years ago or even 5 years ago and they all that was the reason they grew. And now everyone's sort of questioning okay, the limits of essentially a brand built on Instagram, which for I don't know, for me I feel like a lot of those companies were essentially marketing companies first and kind of product companies second. Right?
2: But it, and it made sense I think at the time because their quote unquote real estate, their advertising wasn't expensive. There was an arbitrage. I think the reality now is – not only is twofold one I think customers do want to shop in stores there are certain products that are I think uniquely well suited for stores like ours (laughs) but I think they're not they want experiences they want to get out of the house in particular that's true of Gen Z as compared to millennials Um, and I think there is arbitrage to be had in the real estate environment now in a way that we are we we are
0: both benefiting from but are also our service requires (laughs) right exactly you're in you're sort of right in the middle of that of that thing How do most people find out about you? So
2: we are all about organic marketing. So we have a really intensive um, ambassador program. We work a lot with press. We work a lot with influencer. We are not... We are not both that interested in paid marketing, nor do we think it's actually a good acquisition mechanism for physical businesses necessarily. Like The premise of having a physical business is that the business itself should be your marketing, like you've bought yourself a storefront and a billboard. The shop is a billboard. The shop is a billboard. And so I think for us, we are much more trying to focus on how do you create a sustainable acquisition mechanism that makes sense for our business, given that we're not only obviously going to operate physical environments, but those physical environments have to be really economically viable for us in order for the business to succeed.
0: Let's talk about the ambassador program. How does it work? Sure. So
2: we have about over 100 ambassadors now. They're all hyper-local. They are anywhere from college students in New York to young millennials in New York. And the way we're trying to change, I think, the way that people typically do brand, brand ambassadorships is we don't pay them. We really want them to be invested in the brand, and that means there are interns, there are models in our photo shoots. And so we're actually trying to incorporate them into the company so that they feel really excited about it and organically want to tell their friends. We've been really inspired by what Glossier has done in that regard. I was just going to say, it's it's like the
0: Glossier playbook of Exactly.
2: And I think that that's the way to actually get true brand love and customer relationships, which is... Don't go pay somebody to, you know, show your product on your behalf. Actually make them feel excited about what you're doing and let them have influence over it.
0: Sure. And and also at the stage you're in and the amount of money you have and you're still kind of very young, mm-hmm. it's not. And that's been, that's been another big point that we've talked about on the show quite a lot. It's like, at what point do you start spending really the big money on marketing? And for a lot of people, the concern has been that it's happened too early. Mm-hmm. For a lot of people, they took like their first round of funding and they spent the vast majority of it on Instagram and Facebook because they had to because there was no other way out of it. And now it's like, actually, uh, it's, I know like marketing is an investment and it can be important, but really like are you going to be using, are you going to be telling your, your investors like I'm taking this money, I'm going to be using that for Facebook. Like that has some serious eyebrow raises, but that is what has been happening whether indirectly or directly. Do you do you think that organic only marketing is just in your future? Because at some point you're going to have to pay money.
2: Right? Yeah, I, th- I think it's, I think it's not that
0: we won't ever pay money. I think it's that we're trying to
2: actually inspire people to really, truly love the brand and therefore word, for word of mouth to be a real acquisition channel for us. And then I also think, I just to me, Facebook and Instagram these days, There's a place for it, but it's just – it's so prohibitively expensive. It will likely, I think, only get more expensive. There likely are other paid channels that we may explore where there's more of opportunity to be had there. But I look at it and I'm sort of like, I don't don't even think you're going to get the ROI. (laughs) So why?
0: Yeah, why? (laughs) Like you literally
2: will lose money.
0: (laughs) Who – so you've you've like obviously a lot of people can be your customers because a lot of people want to get their to peers but you are clearly sort of going hard at least what I can tell after certain demographics and kind of their moms too and their dads too and their parent the parents too. What is kind of your marketing, even organic, looked like? What kind of feel have has worked for you, and how do you know it's working? Yeah, so we we're lucky.
2: I think we're attracting a really broad customer base. To, to your point, you know, lots of people want to get their ear Everyone pierced. has ears, exactly, almost <laughs> exactly. Um, we're but in terms of the core core audience that we're after, it's an eighteen to thirty year old, and the marketing, the campaign imagery, etc., reflects that. But we're getting a really healthy split between Gen Z and Millennial, which we like. And then I think there's lots of opportunities. To even expand in the segments that are already organically coming to us. I think there's opportunities to expand in the mom segment. I think there's opportunities to expand in the um, bit older segment. And I think what's interesting is part of the reason I think we're attracting such a broad audience is not only that lots of people have ears, but it's that gender norms are changing. Workplace norms are changing. All of a sudden, you know, when I was 25 and I went to go work at my law firm and I had to remove my cartilage ring because I felt like it was inappropriate. That whole ethos has evolved.
0: Yeah, I took out my
2: nose ring. Exactly. And I remember my mom saying to me, she was like, you have to remove it. And I was and I was sort of like, really, (laughs) this is what this is the situation that we're in. But I think over the last even, you know, five years, that's changed so meaningfully that all of a sudden, I think the ear has become real estate for people in a way that it wasn't really
0: before. Yeah, that makes sense. We're gonna take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. Okay, so we're talking about the ear as uh, real estate, which is just fantastic. Um, There's other parts of the body.
2: There are right now we're all ears, you know, I think for both Lisa and I, we really were focused on do one thing really well and make a really clear value prop for the customer. So we only pierce ears for the moment. We only sell earrings for the moment. We coined the term, Lisa coined the term earscape, which is basically a multi-piercing look that that you end, end up changing into multiple pieces of fashion jewelry. And so we want to communicate to the customer this really clear offering. Do I think we might do different things in the future, TBD? But right now, I mean, the company's truly three months old. (laughs) So I think it's important to stay focused. (laughs) Uh,
0: Yes, I I think it is important to stay focused. And uh, let's talk a little bit about that that because uh, the idea of like the stretchability of the new brands of today, um, I'm not going to call them sort of direct to consumer because I feel like that doesn't mean anything anymore, but um, just whatever, consumer oriented startups uh, that start in the last two years, it has felt like they think they are more stretchable than they are. They open up with like one hero product is usually really good and really popular and they they get all the good stuff out of it and then they're like, okay, well, what's next? And then the second one doesn't feel that good. And the, the third one sort of never really takes off. And there's a multitude of examples here. The first one keeps going. Like the hero product remains the hero product. But then you start asking a little bit of like, what, like every company is just going to sell one thing for the rest of their lives? Of course not. And I know you guys are a little bit different, but I am asking you to kind of take off your studs hat for a minute. Like... Where do we go from here? Are we just going to be living forever with like thousands of different brands, each mm-hmm. selling only one thing? Mm-hmm. And what does that mean kind of for the business model of mostly these online first native startups? But also, what does that mean just for consumers? Because it starts feeling a little crazy.
2: It's funny. I wonder, you know, I used to work at a um, hedge fund called Bridgewater and Bridgewater's thesis was all around um how macro economies were cyclical by their nature at some level. You could see patterns and trends and how things had evolved through time. And part of me sort of wonders if the same thing is true for mm. consumer brands, where you're going to see periods of mass consolidation and then mass fragmentation. And we are in deep fragmentation and tail land now. <laughs> yes. And then you'll see consolidation again. Right. And it will it will sort of – there will constantly be ebbs and flows of that. The honest, The thing that I find very interesting is that I think – The customer at some level right now has truly so many options. The tail is so long that I think there is both tremendous experimentation, like a willingness to try almost any product once. From the consumer. From the consumer's Mm -hmm. perspective. And then simultaneously, the churn is wild, right? Like you'll experiment with any version of any company's hero products. And then you're like, oh, and then there's the next one and the next one and the next one. And I don't think the customer has any appetite really for – um, loyalty, if that makes sense anymore.
0: Mm. No, that, it does make sense. And, and some of this, you know, you see similar trends, I think, and and I'm sure sort of in your past life you saw similar trends like this in media too. It's never been easier to set up a brand. It's yes. also never been easier to set up media in some ways. You can start a newsletter company using Substack and not worry twice about it. But then, okay, what do you do? You get 100 subscribers to your bedsheet meets aperitif startup totally 30 percent <laughs> will churn right in the first month yep and then what happens and then you end up spending all that money on the emails and come back and then we'll give you another 30 percent off and it's just a loss mechanism essentially what you mentioned this about consumers but mm-hmm. i was going to ask you then how do investors feel about all of this because there was like a mad rush it felt like to funding a lot of these companies and now it's like okay a couple are starting to go public and things don't I mean, it was good for the GPS, but like things don't look that good. Um, is the calculus changing a little bit? I look. I'm not an investor, no. so I can't
2: necessarily say. But I think, I think if if I were an investor, I would be interested in either brands or products that truly had unique differentiation, actual moat associated with it, or platform businesses that can offer consolidation for customers, hmm. right? And so I think- So the, rolling this stuff up. Yes. Okay. And I think you. one of the things that you're starting to see that I think is interesting is brand, is brand holding companies- Um, and investors being interested in brand holding companies like places where there can be economies of scale across micro brands. I think those types of plays are really interesting. But I also sit there and I say to myself, I think the customer is really looking for – all different types of products, but they don't necessarily want to shop for all of those products in different places. And so, I think there—I think investors that are looking at businesses that can offer consolidation in some way of access mm-hmm. to those products—that's a really interesting thesis, at least to me.
0: And it makes sense, especially your business. I mean, you—you you could, you mm-hmm. could do. You just mentioned Shop and Shops. You could kind of edge your way into a variety of physical formats that. Would I think be appealing both for the customer but also an investor? would could say, okay, I don't have to like set up a whole new thing. Exactly. Every time I do this. Um, what's kind of, I know you're only three months old, and I hate asking this, but you know, what's the plan? Like, where do you sort of see this as like, okay, we'll scale into a variety of different services business? Do you see yourself as saying, okay, we'll scale into a variety of different products businesses along with our services business? What's kind of like the dream founder, co founder? Yeah. That you? Th- what do you think about?
2: Yeah, so I think 2020, uh, you know, I think I'm really focused on the next six to nine months. I think we, are, we have a lot of demand from customers across the country to bring studs to other places. I think that's what 2020 is going to look like for our business. And then in terms of future products and services, like I said, I think right now I really want to nail this. <laughs> and that, I think, will give us license to do other things potentially. But to your point, what I think lots of people do is they um, – they go into new products or new services potentially too quickly, mm-hmm. and for us, I'm, I'm very focused because this, because this is an operationally intense business that is about hospitality. Like we need to nail this for the customer, and then we can potentially have the authority to move on. But if we don't do that, we'll never they'll never trust us. Yeah. And then I think all what we move on to is about what the customer wants. I'm very focused on them telling us, not us dictating to them.
0: Let's talk a little bit about. I mean, you know, just kind of signals you get from the Prince Street store and kind of data and what you're hearing from customers. How are you sort of firstly, what kind of things are you looking at? Sure. Um, and what are you hearing from them?
2: Well, so I think it's you're you're trying you're constantly trying to understand what would they like to achieve from their experience with you that is that you're not currently offering. And so for example, customers will make constant comments about assortment. And suggestions about assortment, and so one particular example right now is they're asking for a broader assortment and a broader price range that we offer than we offer. Okay. And so we're listening, and we're going to try experimenting. with Could mean more expensive
0: that. or less expensive. B- both.
2: both. Okay. And, um, and I think they I think they really are trying to achieve a thing, and so we have to listen to what are they actually trying to accomplish. And in some ways, what the what would be amazing is if you could imagine like following customers around, seeing what else they were doing outside of your store to really understand this going back to this jobs to be done idea
0: that's the attribution problem. Yeah, <laughs> More exactly than anything,
2: exactly and so for us i think the biggest thing that we're focused on now is really listening to them about assortment and actually trying to understand do we have exactly what they want do we can we or do we have areas of opportunity and doing that in a way that feels really light touch though from an experiment experimentation perspective because you don't want to be basically like five customers say do you have this and then you say okay we're gonna jump and how high well yeah i mean i think that's the
0: that's the thing and it I was going to ask, you know, how are you asking them? Obviously, you have kind of people working in the store who they're getting pretty intimately Mm -hmm. familiar with while they're doing the piercings. That's a great opportunity to have that conversation. Any other kind of um, more quantitative ways that you're kind of asking about this? Anything else that you do, especially post-purchase, that is... Notable, but also you found actually results and things that you can actually look at more seriously?
2: Not yet. I think we're doing it much more qualitatively so far. I think we will do it quantitatively through time. And then personally, like I work in the store and so I talk to customers all day long. And I think we, one of the things that's really interesting about having a physical business is you have the tremendous privilege of actually getting to interact with your customers. And so few brands do that. Maybe they can do it via focus groups or marketing activations. But for us, I see customers every day. I'm going from here to the store. <laughs> right.
0: I was going to ask about the ceiling because, yeah, like how – at what point do you say this is enough of a signal, this is a little, little bit less of a signal? That's a struggle, I think, for any anybody running a company but also – this is all hitting you in the face, and especially loud customer may not be the especially right customer. Mm-hmm. How do you as a co-founder and along with your team kind of figure out signal noise and knowing what decisions to make?
2: Yeah, I think it's. I think in the beginning, it's really being willing to experiment and learn and figuring out how to, how to experiment really quickly in ways that are low cost and low lift for the team and then being willing to scrap something if it doesn't work. So for me, it's less the signal-to-noise ratio is relevant in the sense that, you know, you've got to get to some car, call it quorum of customers are asking for a thing. But in terms of, like, is there some scientific way you're going to do that in the beginning? No. You're right, um, absolutely. But, it's gut. but you, yeah, it's got And I think you have to be willing, though, to take a chance on something. And once you've taken that chance, also be willing for it to fail and not have invested too much time, money, energy in attempting and being able to scrap things quickly. Is
0: there anything off the table for you? Like no, this is something that you because because of some discussion you've had, you know, again with your team and with Lisa, like this is just one thing that I call it like the founder veto. Like mm-hmm. everyone gets one. And mm-hmm. this is the one thing like we will not do. Is there anything off the table as a business? Hmm. I've never been asked this question. Um, I don't think
2: right now, I think if you ask me probably six to nine months from now, I would say you yes. Can come back. Yeah, I would love to come back. Um, but I, I don't think right now, I mean I can't one thing I can't imagine us doing is I can't imagine us taking really long term leases on really giant spaces with filled with tons of extraneous so merchandise.
0: Be a giant showroom yeah. room with okay. I can't see that. But well, I It feels pretty antithetical to the whole point, which is you don't have to do that so exactly. why would you take on that burden.
2: Exactly. And so I think that feels like a definitely off the table. But beyond that, I think we're really you know, we have a culture of listening. We're really trying to be responsive to the customer. And I think that we need to be, we need to not be insistent, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, it absolutely does. Uh, last question. What's the
0: biggest myth of kind of doing, starting a business right now?
2: Biggest myth of starting a business? Yeah. Um, That it's fun every day. Like, I don't think it, I think it's, there are parts of it that are extremely rewarding and you feel like, wow, if I didn't do, if I didn't do this or our team didn't work on this, like this thing wouldn't exist. I think people think that that's true every moment of every day, like That's not true. It's incredibly difficult. And you and your team are sort of the jet engine that moves things forward every day. And that takes a lot of hard work and energy and constant commitment and grit and determination. And so I think, you know, lots of people will look at these types of businesses and say to themselves, you know, I had that idea, I could have done that, etc. And I'm sort of like, man, this, it is hard.
0: <laughs> it is, is hard. It is hard. So that's the one thing I would say. Sounds good. Anna, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And that's all for today's episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. Thank you for listening. Our producer, of course, Pierre b who also made our theme music. If you like the show, please head to your iTunes store, search for a show, leave us a review and a rating. Thanks again for listening.